I want you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Um, I want to teach you something from the scriptures this morning that um, there are certain passages that we come to know early in our life and uh, they have meaning. But then sometimes we're reading through scripture and God seems to put it all together in a way. And that happened to me a few weeks ago. Maybe it's been a month and a half. um, Reading through scripture. And um, it 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 was a moment of almost terror. A moment of great fear filled my heart. And um, it still bothers me until today. And let me just set it up this way. Have you ever, well, young men, those of you, you young men, when you get older, you start looking back on your life and you, sure, you can see the grace of God and you can see the things that God has done, but then also, As you get closer and closer to that finish line, you look back and you realize all the ways in which you also failed. And um, you realize you you never can turn that back around. There's no replay button. Now let me ask you a question. Has there been times in your life when things didn't go right? You prayed, you asked God to guide you, You asked him to keep you from sin or keep you from making a wrong decision and you prayed and you sincerely sought him and then you find out you made the wrong decision. You sinned. Uh, It didn't come out like it was supposed to. Um, I wanna talk about that today. It has to do with being a man, has to do with leadership, because if you are, especially if you are a husband, you are a father, you are an authority, a God-appointed authority. And so if you look at other authorities, like in Scripture, that should make you fear, especially when you look at a king in Israel. If you look, when the king walked with God, the people under him at least were contained and controlled. They did not go off into idolatry or gross immorality because of that authority, because of that king. Uh, We can also look in different places, especially in the Old Testament, where we see the sins of the father handed down to the children. And not only that, but it seems like in each generation that sin grows in strength. You know, we see Abraham, though a man of faith, he, he, um, he was deceitful with Abimelech. We see his, his son do the same, and then we see Jacob, known as the deceiver. And um, when we talk about walking in the fear of the Lord, um, yes, it's not this dread, the fear of the Lord is not this 
fearful dread of an unstable deity. (laughs) But it does mean more than reverence. You and I, as I said last night, we will make decisions and those decisions will have not only a tremendous impact upon ourselves, but they will have a tremendous impact upon our families, upon our wives, upon our children and our grandchildren. I've heard it said that um, someone did a historical study of the genealogy of Jonathan Edwards alongside a study of the genealogy of an infamous, infamous criminal who lived near him. And, and it, was, it was terrifying. So the criminal begat criminal begat criminal begat criminal. Edwards, preachers, statesmen, governors. And so you sit there and go, well, well I've, I've been a criminal or I've, I've been a foolish man or I've... Well, yeah, but your life's not over. Your life's not over, nor, nor is mine. And if you're sitting here and you're 80, if you're still breathing, your life's not over. You know, no one celebrates the beginning of a race. You don't get a trophy because you begin. Well, you do now, but... <laughs> <laughs> but in a reasonable, rational society, you don't get a trophy for beginning. You don't even get a trophy for how you begin, but how you finish. And that's what gives me hope. I still have breath. And so I can go on with the Lord. I can press on to know the Lord. So even if you're converted at the age of 85 and you've been a drunkard and you've done terrible things all your life, still, there's still hope. There's still hope. Now, I want us to go to to Deuteronomy chapter 17, and uh, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really know what's going on here. I had uh, probably 25 pages of notes about manhood and everything, and uh, we're just not going to do them. Um, In verse 14, he says, when you enter... Uh, chapter 17, verse 14 of Deuteronomy, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will be a king, Um, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one whom from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and he that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be filled up 
lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment in the sight to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now, one of the things that you have to realize here that is, is so extremely important is that any position of authority allows you opportunity to abuse that authority. Authority in the kingdom of heaven is never given for the sake of the one who is given the authority. We are to be servant leaders. If, if I am to lead my home, if I am to lead my wife, if I am to lead my children, it is that I must lead for the glory of God and I must lead for the benefit of my wife and my children and not for the benefit of myself. Kings in this world, uh, great entrepreneurs in this world, they do so many things for themselves. There's a narcissism that is deadly in which we believe ourselves to be the epicenter of the universe and everyone else revolves around us. And if we're given some authority, it is to serve ourselves, it is to exalt ourselves, it is to leave a name or a legacy for ourselves. But that's never the case in the kingdom of heaven. That the leader in the kingdom of heaven always goes to bed tired, if necessary, goes to bed hungry. The purpose of his leadership is to lay his life down for those whom he is leading. And we see this quite clearly. He, um, if we go down to, to verse uh, 16, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He is to be wholly devoted to the Lord. He's to be looking toward the future. He's to press on to know the Lord and grow in conformity to the image of his Lord. Another thing about his life, if he is given resources, and that can be money, that can be time, that can be opportunity, that is not to accumulate things for himself. They say that in America, the difference between a boy and a man is simply the price of his toys. But the, Paul said that when he was a child, he acted like a child. And when he was a man, he put away childish things. I was in the airport, I guess it was two days ago, and um, my family was sitting over on some, some of the seats over there, and I went into a little cafeteria-type thing. It was a small airport. And um, so that I could just work. And I saw just a large group of, of business people, I guess, came in. And, and uh, you could get coffee there, but you could also, I guess, get some sort of drink or something. And I just observed them for a little while. Many of them were men my age. They were acting like... They were sophomoric. They were, they were acting like maybe freshmen in college. Their conversations were so deluded and silly, talking about things that you would expect maybe some young university student to talk about, but not men. 
They were talking about cars and boats and basketball games and, and drinks and concerts and all kinds of things. Well, let them think and talk that way, but not us. Sure, we can laugh, we can joke, we can have a good time, but when you get down into what we are, we should be very, very serious men who are not thinking about accumulating things or accumulating comforts in this life. If you want to stick out your chest and say that you're a man and you're a leader, it means that you lead to serve. You lead to serve. You lead to bless, to bless others, and to bless others in a concentric circle. Now, what do I mean by that? <clears throat> now, I have, I've had people come up to me, you know, especially young, aspiring missionaries, and they go, you know, I just love people in China. I just want to be a missionary in China. I love the Chinese so much. And <laughs> I'll always say, and I, I've worked with the Chinese for almost two decades, and one of my greatest burdens is the Chinese. I love the Chinese. I get along with the Chinese. But when a young man talks like that, I go, do you know why you love the Chinese so much? No, because you don't know any Chinese. <laughs> and he says, what do you mean? I'm not, I said, I'm not saying that it's harder to love a Chinese than it is another nationality. What I'm trying to tell you is it's easy to love someone 10,000 miles away. That's easy. Platitude after platitude about how much we love someone that we don't know. It's difficult to love your wife. It's difficult to love your children. It's difficult to love your close friends. It's difficult to love your brothers and sisters in Christ that are right there in front of you. So it's easy to talk about service also to so many people that are faceless and nameless that you don't know. You can write poetry about it. But you see, we're called to serve not just someone 10,000 miles away, but the people closest to us. We're to give our lives. And if we're given authority to the degree that we receive authority, the more we have, the more we must humble ourselves and serve, the more tired we should become. And that's the way they it works. Now, I want you to look. It says, <clears throat> verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. You see, here we're talking about two, two of possibly the greatest temptations that exist. Immorality and greed. And I want you to know something. If you are a member of the kingdom of heaven and you've been given some degree of authority in the kingdom of heaven, whether it's in your family or, or in the pastorate or in some sort of ministry, you can count on the fact that you're going to be approached with these two possibilities, immorality and greed. You need to fear them. There are many things you should fear. You should fear sin. You should fear the devil. But there's something I fear. 
with a greater intensity. And what is that? It's me. Me. I mean, the devil could go take a vacation in Palm Springs and I'm still going to have trouble with sin. Fear is a good thing. It might be a little sin, a little temptation that you think, I don't have to fear that one. But see, the problem is that one leads to another one, which leads to another one, which leads to another one, which leads to another one. And you're, to the degree that you have authority, you're going to be tempted to do wrong with that authority, to abuse that authority. And you need to be very, very careful. You need to walk circumspectly because you need to realize the more authority you have as a husband, as a father, the greater damage, or as a minister, the greater damage your fall is going to bring to other people. And remember what Jesus said, it would be better that a millstone be tied around your neck, that you be cast in the sea, than you cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's why the hymn writer wrote, Lord, never let me outlive my love for thee. Kill me first. Kill me first. And don't think that this is just for young men. What you need to understand is if you look in the Old, if you look in, especially in the Old Testament, men seem to fall not when they're young, but when they're old. After they fought their battles, after they did great things, after they think they can rest on their laurels, and then they fall. Noah, <clears throat> who has accomplished something like Noah? And yet drunkenness. David fought the Lord's battles. I mean, the things that David did. I want I to meet David. And then Bathsheba. Why? Because he was older and he wasn't going out fighting anymore. You see? Now, we really haven't got to the part that I really want to get to. Verse 18, now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. You know, nowhere else is anyone told to do this. And why is that? Because the king had such authority. This was not a democracy. This king ruled. To the degree that you have authority, you must submit to authority. Always remember that. When you're a young man and you're single, you need to study the word of God. The moment you become a husband, you need to study the word of God tenfold. Because now you have been given authority to lead one of God's daughters. And then when you have children, even more so, studying the scriptures. An authority must be an authority under God's authority. You see, Adam made a terrible mistake. Yes, he was to rule over everything on the earth, but he was to rule as God's vice regent, uh, under God, under God's authority, only according to what God said, not according to what Adam even felt, but what God said. He needed to remember what God said, and he needed to direct his entire life according to what God said. 
And this is the case with this king. He's to write out the entire law by hand. And, and then not only that, now I want you to realize something, especially when you're an older man. Some of you will understand what I'm talking about. You're, you're an older man, you have, maybe you've worked in a profession for 40 years and you're known as something of an expert or you've been a minister for 40 years and you've had some uh, fruit in your life and you're respected in the ministry and then all of a sudden some 25-year-old comes up to you and starts telling you where you could cook correct some things. Well, the more authority you have, the least prone you are to accept correction. It's like, who do you think you are? That is not, that is not the attitude of those who have authority in the kingdom of heaven. That should never be the attitude. I remember one time, years ago in Peru, um, so I had just preached a sermon, and I came down, and this little woman from, from the Sierra, from, from the high, high mountains, the Andes, she could barely read. Uh, a lot of, during the war, a lot of people from the mountains came into Lima as refugees, and so she was basically a mountain woman who had herded goats and cattle, and, and she could barely read, and she's, she's there in her poncho and everything, and when I came down from the pulpit, she came up to me, and she started telling me where I was wrong in my sermon, and after I was finished, one of, one of my dear friends, Jose, he comes over, he was a deacon, and he goes, why do you do that? Why do you listen and I said, because sometimes Jesus comes dressed in very strange clothing. <laughs> do, do you see what I'm saying? Well, this, this king, sitting on his throne, had to write out the law, but as others were observing, to see if he got it right. What are you looking at? When we're older, that's our attitude. Do you see? And it's very, 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 very dangerous. The more you have authority, the more you ought to be also submitting, not only to God's authority, but to the correction of other people. And that includes the correction of your wife. And it can include even the correction of your children. I remember one time my son Evan, I think I was on the phone or something, and I was, I was really laying into this guy. And after I got done, my son, I think at the time he's like 16 or something, and he said, Dad, couldn't you have said the same thing and been a little bit more compassionate? And the answer was, yes, forgive me. Do you see? Now, and it says, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. I want to submit something to you. Remember what, what Jesus said about John the Baptist? There was just no one greater than him. So no one in any language. That means Solomon, David, the prophets. No one born of men was greater than John the Baptist. This king wasn't greater than John the Baptist. And yet, what else did Jesus say? 
But even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now here's what I want you to see. If this pitiful little king under the old covenant had to do this, how much more do you have to do this as a man in the kingdom of heaven? As a husband, as a father, as a minister. Look what it's, and it shall be with him. Are the scriptures with you? I, I just wrote a chapter. I'm, I'm writing a book on missions. I've been writing forever. And uh, it started out as being a brief expose on missions. And now it's like got, a, I think, 98 chapters. <laughs> so, um, But I just wrote a thing on, on administrators and showed that the two of the greatest men in all of Scripture of which nothing bad is said, were both known for their administrative abilities, Joseph and Daniel. And yet you look at Daniel, three times a day he separated to pray and seek God as an administrator. Is the word of God with you? Are you praying without ceasing? It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. He never reaches a point where, well, I'm 60 years old and I've read through this thing 138 times. No. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about this. So let's say that next week, starting Monday, is going to be one of the busiest weeks of your life. So you've got a plan. Seven days of just busyness. So you have a plan. You tell your wife on, on, on Sunday, look, here's what I want to do. I'm going to be so busy this next week, I'm not going to have time to eat. So I want you to prefer, prepare food on Saturday because when I get up Sunday at 8 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to eat from 8 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. Constantly, I'm just going to sit down at the table. I'm going to eat all my meals then so that I can, uh, the next week I don't have to worry about it. That's just not going to work, is it? First of all, you're going to get very, very sick. Second, you're going to be hungry by Tuesday. Maybe even by Monday, looking at some of you guys. You're going, it doesn't work that way. Or I don't, I'm so busy, I don't have time to breathe. So, you know, Sunday, I'm just going to take a big boatload of air into my lungs and I'll, I'll breathe again the next week. It doesn't work that way, does it? I think all those things are given to us in nature. I honestly do. They're given to us in nature in order to show us spiritual truths. I believe the reason why we have to eat and drink and breathe like we do is to demonstrate spiritual reality. Remember this, you're only as spiritual as you are today. You're only as devoted as you are today. You're a man of the word depending on what you did this morning. And I want to tell you that in the ministry, for some of you who are in the ministry, 
you can get so carried away with, I have to prepare sermons, or I have to write a book, or I have to do this, so I don't have time to read those, set aside and read those chapters. Or just enjoy some time with the Lord. I don't have time for that. Well, you've started your decline right there. You've started, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. One of the most underestimated, if not the most underestimated discipline in all of Christianity is simply reading the Bible. I laugh sometimes um, talking to a bunch of young reform guys and I go, you know what your problem is? You only have two books, Ephesians and Romans. You've left out everything else. You need to read the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation over and over and over and over again. And you go, well, I read things and I don't understand. Well, join the exclusive club. (laughs) But here's what I want to tell you. As... I did an exercise. No, no, I don't even know how I came about it. No one told me. But when I became a new Christian, I got a spiral notebook because, of course, we didn't have computers. And I read through the New Testament. And as I read through, if I came to something I didn't understand, which was every other verse, I just wrote out a one-sentence question. What does this, you know, what does this mean, a certain thing? And, and I didn't even answer it. I just wrote it out. I would put, you know, Mark 1, 16 and, and then keep reading. And when I got done, I had a huge spiral notebook full of questions. I got another notebook to go through the New Testament again. And here's what I discovered. I discovered that as I went through the second time, this is as a new believer, I was able to answer some of the questions that I had written out because the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. But then I also wrote down questions I hadn't even thought of. And as I read through Scripture, I began to understand. Now, men, I want to tell you something, especially you young guys. If I have two men here with the exact same theology, the exact same doctrine, I mean, they're just parallel one another, a reflection of one another. And I'm all for reading good books. I read good books. I use good books. I use commentaries. But here's what I want to share with you. If I have two men with the exact same theology and one, one of them got his theology out of Scripture and the other one got it out of good books, I'm going to be able to tell the difference when I talk to them. There's no substitute for Scripture. For just reading scripture. And if you say, well, I'm reading scripture, but I don't understand it. God's blessing will be upon you. And it'll have a greater impact upon you than if you did not obey and you neglected scripture. It's a corny story, but it works about a little boy comes to his grandfather on top of a mountain. He says, Grandpa, he goes, I'm not reading scripture anymore because as soon as I read it, I forget it. Okay. So he handed a boy a, a coal bucket. For those of you under 30, that's a bucket that you carry chunks of coal in. Um, and he said, now I want you to go down the, the hill there to the creek, and I, I want you to fill up the coal bucket and bring it up here. So he goes down, and he fills up the bucket, and he comes back up the hill. But the bucket's got holes in it. So the, by the time he gets up the hill, there's no water in it. So his grandfather sends him back down three more times. 
little boy comes up finally and says, Grandpa, this is no use. I mean, this is not working. He said, why? He goes, well, I fill it up down there, but before I get up here, it's all empty. So why should I do it? And he said, look inside the bucket, boy. He looks inside the bucket. It was clean. All the coal dust was washed out. And that's the same way it is with Scripture. I don't understand everything. I mean, I'm still working on Romans 6. <laughs> there is so much. But should I expect to exhaust the Scriptures in just 40 years or 50 years or 60 years? Really? Am I to know everything there is to know about God? After an eternity of eternities, I won't understand everything about God. But I was never commanded to study the Scriptures if I understood everything. I was commanded to study the Scriptures, period. Period. You probably don't know, unless you're a doctor, how your respiratory system works, but that doesn't keep you from breathing. You don't know how your digestive system works, but that doesn't keep you from eating. So we need to devote ourselves to the study of Scripture. And you're saying, oh, I thought this was a men's conference. You were going to talk to us about hunting bear with your bare hands or something. Yeah, that's really going to help you spiritually. You know, I said yesterday, a friend of mine says, well, you know, it's not rocket science. Actually, what he always says is it's not rocket surgery. <laughs> you need the scriptures, men. I could get you all hyped up about being masculine. I could get you all hyped up about all kinds of things. It's going to, in three days, it ain't going to meet anything. That's the problem we have with these conferences, some of them. It's like a wind-up toy. Wind everybody up and get them all psyched up. And after three days, the whole thing winds down. What I'm telling you, if you will live a life of simply reading the Scriptures daily, of meditating on the Scriptures, even when you don't understand, if you will live a life of growing in prayer, you're going to do okay. And you know you're not as faithful as you ought to be. Now, look at what he says here. It shall be with him, verse 19, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but how do you grow in the fear of the Lord? One of the things we constantly pray at Heart Cry in our corporate prayer meetings is, Lord, increase our fear of thee. And that's a good prayer. But I'm sorry, even that good prayer is not going to work if you don't do what God commanded. And what did he command? Through studying the scriptures, through reading the scriptures, we learn to fear the Lord because we learn who he is. And the more you know about him, yes, the more you will love him, but also the more you will fear him. One of the great problems today is God's people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge of Him. The greatest knowledge a man can possess, according to Jeremiah, is to know the Lord. He's not to boast in wisdom or riches or military might, but he's to boast in the fact that he knows God. He told the church in Corinth, 
Stop sinning. And then he mentions, your problem is you don't know God. You know God. You won't sin. You see, that's what you need to see. It's the knowledge of who he is. What does it mean to say God is holy? What does it mean to say that God is righteous? What does it mean to say God is love? What does it mean to say God is wrath? The only way you can know this God is through his scriptures. And the only way you can learn to fear him is by knowing him. Oh, brothers, it is so extremely important. I graduated from seminary uh, with very good grades. I'm saying that not to boast in my intellect, but to to let you know something. But it was kind of a liberal seminary. There was a lot of neo-orthodoxy. Karl Barth, Otto Weber, Jürgen Moltmann, different people like that. When I went to Peru, there was a brother who was a... uh, He was a... uh, He had been very involved in the Catholic Church, and then he was converted, and he decided that he would go to, you know, Germany, where the Reformation happened. He had no idea that Germany had changed quite a bit since the Reformation. So he got there and found out they weren't studying the Scriptures much either. He came back. He was brilliant, brilliant mind, and he said, I'm going to start a seminary, and he talked to me. He said, you know, like Greek and Hebrew and stuff, could you help? And I said, well, I know it a little bit. And I said, I, I'll help you. So I said, what's the course syllabus? Well, he sent it to me. And I, I, I was like, whoa, that's a novel idea. You know what the first semester was? Every student reads the entire Bible, writes out every question they have as they go through there and write a chapter summary of every chapter. You do that in four months. And you come into class with all your questions. So the professor has to be ready. And I mean, I started studying the Bible 10 hours a day. Because I had to answer questions just off the cuff, any question they throw at me. And then it was like, okay, we finally got through the, okay, what's the next semester? Okay, you're going to study through the Gospels. Like, I don't know how, I don't remember how many times we would study through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they'd write out all their questions and come in. And I mean, when we went to systematic theology, okay, how are we going to study the Trinity? Well, they're going to begin in Genesis 1, and they're going to end in the last verse of the book of Revelation. They're going to pull out every verse that talks about the Trinity. The thing that happened, though, the first semester was amazing. When I got through the first, the books of the law, I was fearing God like I had never feared God before, just by studying the books of the law. Do you see? The power of Scripture, the power of Scripture. It's, he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. By carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. How do you fear God? Fearing God is a disposition. It is an attitude, but that's not all it is. It manifests itself, what? In observing the words of the law and these statutes. By observing the will of God as it is manifested in the scriptures. That's how you show that you truly fear God. 
But you can't fear God if you don't know God, and you can't fear God or walk in the fear of God if you don't know what he said. It's an impossibility. There is no Christianity, no mature biblical Christianity, apart from knowing the will of God as it is revealed in Scripture. How many commands do you and I break out of ignorance? And that ignorance might be less of a crime if we had been converted last week. But how many offenses against God do we commit on a daily basis after 25 years of Christianity because we've neglected God's word? That's frightful. And with regard to our family. Now look at this, verse 20. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. Why does the king have to study the word of God? Why do those in authority have to study the word of God? Why do husbands and fathers have to study the word of God so that their heart is not lifted up over their wives and children? So that when they fail their wife, they go to their wife and say, forgive me. Forgive me. So that when they're impatient with their children, they go to their children broken and they say, forgive me. And something just for you fathers, especially young fathers to know, here's something that you really need to practice. When you realize you've been impatient with your child or you've committed some other sin, you've raised your voice, whatever it is, you go to them and you say, I have sinned against you. The sin that I committed against you was impatience. Please forgive me. And then what the child is most likely going to do is, oh, that's all right, Dad. And you're going to have to go, no. No, it's not. One of the meanings of a word used for forgiveness is to release. You must forgive me. You must release me. And you teach that child to look you right in the eye and say, yes, Dad, you sinned against me. You were impatient. But I forgive you. Now, they don't have the authority to say, and dad, go to your room. (laughs) But your wife probably does. (laughs) Do you see that transaction? What's going on there? And how do you, where do you learn these things? It's not necessarily that, oh, there it is right there in Hezekiah chapter three, verse 12. That's not, but it's, it's. As you study scripture and begin to walk in the fear of the Lord and you know you're a sinner, you have to go and you have to ask forgiveness. Look, 
My children know how I preach. But my children also know I am not a perfect man. If I do not break before them and ask for forgiveness, their hearts will become hardened against me. And they will see Christianity as nothing more than a pulpit to preach from. You want to embitter the heart of your child? Then sin and blow it off like it was nothing. Because it's just a child. But remember what Jesus said? The least of these, if you cause them to stumble. You're never going to be a perfect husband. You're never going to be a perfect father. But you can be a broken one. You can be a broken one. You can be transparent. Now, verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and they may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left. It's staying in the word and being around people who are in the word. And especially among men, iron sharpening iron. One, when I became a Christian, people were amazed at how fast I grew. Now you say, well, that's boastful. No, let me finish the story. There was a group of students who were older than me on campus who were totally sold out for Christ. I mean, these guys stand up in classroom and witness and everything. I mean, they were wild men. I'll never forget one of them. There's like 500 people in the auditorium and the professor's down there lecturing on love according to Buddha and according to this guy and that guy and every other guy. And when he gets done, a friend of mine, big old Texan, he goes, raised his hand. The professor goes, yes, I see that hand up there. Uh, would you like to say something? Yeah, I would. He stands up, pulls out his Bible and goes, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And he started preaching about love. That's why I grew. The moment I got saved, they go, you're going to live with us now. And they were around me all the time. They were men who cared for my soul, even though they were in their young 20s. That you're not going, even if you do this right here, don't think that you're going to be able to do this in isolation from godly brothers. You still need godly brothers. You must have godly men around you. So that you do not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Look at sons. What you do is going to have an impact on everyone around you. But especially, it's going to have an impact upon those whom you love the most. I'm 60 years old and I have a six-year-old daughter. And... I think, how much longer do I have with her before God calls me home? 
what do, what do I care about anything except that she comes to know the Lord? That she walks in godliness. All my, my older children, that they continue on with the Lord. I mean, what else matters? Go do all your silly boy stuff. I don't care about... I, what do, it's, it's, we walk with Him not just for us. Not just for us on that great day. We walk with Him for those whom we love. And that's another reason why we ask forgiveness so often because we don't want them to stumble because of us. Now, now I'm going to get to what I really wanted to get to. And what really brought great fear to me. Now, you see this chapter 17. It's the law. Okay? It was the law given written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by Moses. By the time Solomon came along, this law had been there for hundreds of years. And Solomon was commanded to do this. Everything, he was commanded to do it. Okay? It was given to him as a stewardship to do this. It was written down. And he was supposed to write it down. So it was given to him already. He was to write it down. He was to look at it. It's a done deal. God's already spoken. Now, I want you to go for a moment. I want you to go to 1 Kings. Chapter 3. Now the law has been with Israel for hundreds of years. Solomon had the law. It says in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 1 Kings, Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What did the law tell him to do? Told him not to do that. Right? Law told him not to do that. And took Pharaoh's daughter. Lord, Lord told him not to do that. In the law that was written hundreds of years before, God told him in the scriptures not to do it. And brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, As we all know, Solomon prays, and then we know here in this context that God answers him. Now keep in mind verse 1, and what do we have? In, he's made an alliance with Pharaoh. He's gone back where he shouldn't have gone. He's marrying foreign women. We also know he was collecting horses by now. Everything that Deuteronomy 17 said don't do, he did basically. Here's the strange thing. After Solomon prays, look at verse 10. 
It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself a long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. Now, hold on. In, in verse 1, we see that he's, he's broken all this. So it seems to me like after Solomon prays and God appears to him, you know, God speaks to him, God would have said, thank you for that prayer. It was very, very beautiful. And I am going to answer it and do all kinds of things for you. But we need to deal with this thing about Egypt. We need to deal. You know, God is speaking to him. And I wonder, I'll never be able to answer this until I ask it in heaven. But why didn't God say to him, hey, hey, hold it. This is all wonderful. And I really want to do a lot through you. But there's some serious things we got to deal with. You going back to Egypt, you marrying a woman, you collecting horses and all these different things. Why didn't God bring that up? Because he'd already brought it up. He'd already said it in Scripture. And that's the fearful thing. That is the fearful thing. When, when someone like you and I are crying out, God, give me wisdom to make this decision with regard to my family. I don't know what to do. And it seems like we're not hearing anything. It's probably because he's already told us things in Scripture that we've ignored or neglected to study. We're walking in ignorance. And you expect him to give you some subjective dream or some guidance Brothers, we put ourselves in danger every moment that we neglect the scriptures. Do you see that? Do not ask God for a dream. Do not ask God for subjective leadership when he's already answered all your questions somewhere in scripture, but you're ignorant of it because you've neglected scripture. God, I'm having trouble with my son or I'm having trouble with my daughter. I don't know what to do and I don't know why this has turned out this way because I took them to church and all these other different things. Yet there's this whole corpus of Scripture that you neglected. God doesn't have to speak to you in a dream. He doesn't have to lead you subjectively. Now, he may lead you subjectively just out of grace because he is a gracious God, but don't presume upon that. Learn how to study Scripture and direct your life and your family according to Scripture. And do not presume upon the fact that you as a man, as an authority, can fail to do what kings were commanded to do and that somehow God is going to pull you out of everything. You and I have a great responsibility. And that is to know the scriptures. People say, well, you know, the scriptures don't have an answer for everything. Maybe not in a direct way. 
But if you study Scripture, you're going to increase your character, increase your wisdom, and then also be able to take general principles that are set in stone in Scripture and apply them correctly. And you're going to be able to learn how to discern or weigh differences. Do you see that? And brothers, this is... This is something that I sit there and I look back at my life and I go, how many trials and difficulties in relationships, in ministry, and everything would have been avoided if I had simply been a more diligent student of the Scripture? How many times have I presumed upon on God leading me out or through some problem by some supernatural means of providence when his scripture clearly indicated how to stay out of the problem and how to navigate in the midst of the problem. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. If you will not study the scriptures for your own good, then do it for your wife. Do it for your children. We live in a world today that is so unlike the world I grew up in. The world I grew up in, no, no, there was corruption, there was, but I mean, it is like the pit of hell has been opened. There's confusion, mental and demonic. The only way we're going to be able to navigate this is the scriptures. Now I want to end by just giving you something of an illustration. Imagine that that I'm standing here. There's a wall. There's a door behind me. And something's coming through that door. It's going to kill me. And the only way I'm going to be able to escape what's coming through that door is to make it to that other door across the room. To run through that door as quickly as I can and shut it behind me. Say, well, what's the problem? You get ready. (laughs) You take off across the room. But right before you take off across the room, you see that door handle's already starting to turn. That monster's coming through there. But right before you take that first step, you're also informed, and by the way, the floor is mined. There are mines buried all throughout that floor. What do you do? You got something coming that's going to kill you. You make one wrong step, you're dead. What are you going to do? You're paralyzed with fear, and that's where most men are. They're paralyzed with fear. They know they're in danger here. They know they can't escape. They don't know how to go, where to walk, what to do. So I'm in this room and I'm doomed and I'm paralyzed with fear until someone says, oh, and by the way, here's the map to show you where all the minefields are laid. So, okay. Now you say, well, that's a simplistic answer. 
Well, maybe you're complicating things. Some dude railed on me one time. He made me so mad. And I made the statement that at least a great part of the things we suffer are the result of neglecting the study of Scripture and prayer. And I mean he railed on me of an oversimplistic answer and everything, but my question comes back to just one question. Can you say before God that you daily devote yourself to the study of Scripture and prayer knowing that you're in the evil world and you must walk circumspectly and you must have the wisdom to discern which way you should walk? So few men, even when you talk to preachers, as someone mentioned it yesterday, if you talk to preachers about their prayer life, they will change the subject so quick. If you talk to preachers about private devotion, and these are good men, it's not simplistic telling a king with all the affairs of a kingdom to copy by hand his own copy of the law, that seems simplistic. But if Solomon had done that and just adhered to a few of those prohibitions, oh my goodness. Kind of simplistic when God said, hey, that tree over there, don't eat from it. So you mean everything's gonna go well if I just don't eat from that tree? That sounds a little simplistic. Well, maybe, but it's real. And no, even the godliest, wisest Christians, they're not going to be free from trouble. But I can tell you personally, my own life has seen trouble. I do not believe it would have needed to see if I had walked in greater fear of the Lord and greater wisdom of Scripture. And I think you can probably say the same thing about yourself. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the examples that you have left us. Oh God, please, increase our fear of thee that your good spirit would lead us, Lord, to take to heart what you have written. In Jesus' name, amen.